once you learn to make effective decisions consistently, you gain a confidence, your shoulders pull back, your ability to look forward and not look back and wonder if you made the right decisions, just frees your brain. So you're a better leader. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. On average, we make 35,000 decisions a day. That's a lot of decisions, which means having a process for making effective, successful decisions is a foundational aspect of leadership. But decision-making isn't usually taught in school or on the job. Jack Flaherty is working to fill that gap. Jack is an advocate for leadership development, particularly in the area of decision-making. He's a consultant, a speaker, and the author of The Decision Switch, Seven Principles of Successful Decision-Making. In this episode, number 384, Salisa talks with Jack about his decision-making framework, decision-making as a process, not an event, the importance of self-reflection and getting better at decision-making, the role of empathy in decision-making, and the benefits of incorporating an effective decision-making process into an organization's culture. Salisa and Jack spoke in October 2023. I know that you say that decision-making is a process and not an event, and I would note for listeners that may sound familiar to them because we often talk on this podcast about learning being not an event, but a process. But would you just unpack that assertion for us and explain why it's important to view decision-making as a process and not an event? Decision-making is a process because there's critical events that happen before, during, and after a decision occurs that often influence whether or not we achieve a successful outcome. And before the decision is made, it's activities, whether it be gaining you know, additional information that we need, collaborating with others to make sure that we're not making you know, an isolated decision, and also looking at those that who might be impacted. And then once we've made the decision, there's the follow-through. So often I've seen great decisions that were done with meaningful reason fail because it never gained the momentum it needed or had that champion to overcome the obstacles that virtually every decision winds up facing. And the last aspect of that is a self-reflection. You know, how do we learn from our mistakes, from you know, these activities and apply them to future decisions so we can continue to improve and make better decisions for both our companies, but also for ourselves? So I learned in reading the decision switch that apparently we make something like 35,000 decisions a day. And so, you know, that's a lot of decisions. What are the implications of that sheer volume of decision-making that we do on a daily basis? There's many references. One that I love to use is decision fatigue mm. and that we consume so much information on a daily basis and have to make decisions that we become exhausted and you no longer put forth the effort. And the, the critical aspect of those 35,000 decisions is to really identify which ones matter what are the most critical decisions and make sure that we apply the right amount of effort and due diligence around them to get the outcomes that we seek. And so throughout the process, it's the, you know, the first of my principles is to triage first, to evaluate those decisions that we become cognizant of, we become aware of, 
and first identify whether it's our decision to make, because often we see individuals who either don't participate in the decision or should, or those you know, that jump into a decision and they had no reason for being in that particular process. And so when we look at the 35,000 decisions, it's really breaking down and prioritizing those as to what needs to happen now, what maybe needs to happen in the future, and those that we can let, in a sense, the world itself you know, resolve those decisions or actions that need to happen. Well, you know, so making decisions, that's something we all have to do. We all have to do a lot of. And so it does seem like given just that sheer volume, given the quantity of decisions, that having a decision-making process would be very helpful. But I also got from reading the decision switch that it's not just that a process is helpful in getting through sort of the quantity of decisions. It also speaks to the quality of decisions. Correct. So would you talk a little bit about how the process helps make sure that the decisions made are good decisions or better decisions than they would be if you hadn't used that process? Sure. And I'll first put a lens on this in that we are now amidst a world of technology. You and I right now are speaking remotely because we're on you know a video call and, and having this conversation. And Looking at the past, we may have had colleagues that we could have bounced ideas off at, at the office. Now we're sitting much more isolated. And so we need to very distinctly look at what each of these faces are so we can make a well-informed decision. So it's, it's looking at things like, do we have all the necessary information you know, to make a decision? Or are we doing a more siloed type of you know, decision, which is more of a hip kind of check decision, where it's you know, based on an idea, a gut feeling, rather than actually exploring what other ideas are out there, and almost more importantly, what the perceptions are of other individuals, particularly those that you're going to have to rely upon, and seeing where they are and how they fit into this. Because as we talked about before, it's a process. They're going to be the ones going to have to carry this through. And by making a more well-informed decision, it, it, it turns into a much more quality you know, decision. And this is where I use the word consistency. If we can more consistently make good and well-informed decisions, we're going to be more successful, whether, again, it's for ourselves, for our companies, for whatever we're looking to do. And that is such a critical aspect of this is the success portion that correlates directly back to making good quality decisions. I feel like, too, it could be good to pause here for a moment because one of the points that you make, which I think is very important, is the fact that decision-making is such an integral part of our daily lives, and yet most people aren't taught how to make good decisions. And so, I mean, I think that's part of how you came to focus on these seven principles of decision-making that you write about in the book, but maybe just talk about sort of, why, I don't know, why do you think that's the case? Why is this really important facet of both professional and personal life not given time in school or, you know, more time in culture in general? I put so much deep thought into this, and this is part of my thesis statement. Because if you think about it in your childhood, we're really not taught how to make decisions. We're punished or reprimanded for making poor ones. Even within our schooling systems, there's no real focus on decision-making. We might have a philosophy class or a history class, but there's no focus on you know, why that individual made that particular decision. It's often focused on the outcome of a decision. And it's only really when you get into your, you know, your working profession where there's two aspects that you know, are, are the foundation for how we really develop our, our skill set. 
And that's one is mentors. And the second is on the job experience. The challenge though, again, is I go back to that technology reference I made before is our ability to really access mentors and get those really transparent relationships where you can be completely vulnerable with another individual and saying, I just don't know is something that people are so terrified right now of. I also believe that there's a bias in society that anybody who exudes an overabundance of confidence must know what they're talking about. And so you don't question you know, their ability, their decisions that they've made. You just assume that they know how to make good decisions. And so you'll follow them. And, and the breakdown of that is we then sit back and we don't ask good objective questions. And not in a, I would say, uh, deconstructive manner, but in a productive, constructive manner. And the idea of how do we make this idea better? And I think about this one CEO that I work for, brilliant gentleman, charismatic. I think that allowed him to walk into board meetings and he would present an idea, but present it almost in the fashion of this is an unfinished idea and I need the help of this room to finish this idea. And I think if we can take that approach of not assuming that we're always right, but that we've got a great idea and we want others to contribute towards that, sets up cultures for organizations or just sets up you know, a way of thinking for ourselves that we're always seeking the best outcome. We just don't, we don't, we don't want to be in a situation where we just want to be right. And I do think that my last piece on this is today's individualistic society, people just tend to want to be right. And I, I think that you know, undermines our ability to make consistently quality decisions because it's ego versus you know, what the optimal decision is for a particular circumstance. Yeah, I'm hearing in there, I think, a tendency for us to expect leaders to have the answer, right? Which means, mm. you know, if we present them with a choice, they can make a decision. And, and to your point, then we maybe accept that decision without a lot of questioning when really the decision could potentially benefit from that. Let's all participate. Let's all think about this. Let's think about what could go wrong or alternatives to the route that the leader has decided on. Absolutely. And if I could just add in one more thing, if you look at the composition of today's workforce, particularly like a Gen Z, they want organizations where they feel like they can contribute. They want That's where you're going to get the employee retention. That's where you're going to get every ounce of energy from your employees is when they feel like they're contributing. And then the second part of that is because of the speed of technology and innovation, you just can't have one or two sets of eyes looking at the horizon as to what changes are afoot. The entire organization itself needs to be very mindful of, you know, what are you know, obstacles that are coming up? Where are the opportunities? And that way you have hundreds of thousands of eyes that are constantly looking at the horizons or inside the organization and saying, how can we do this better? And by rewarding that behavior and really setting the culture from the top down, that this is an expectation that you come to meetings with, I don't want to say an opinion, but a well-informed background to have a conversation really comes to a much richer conclusion and one that everyone buys into. And therefore you get the whole organization behind you instead of being a lone cowboy, just trying to push your personal agenda. Mm -hmm. 
thinking of the IKEA effect, right? If we build it a little bit, then we're going to be more invested in that decision and and seeing it to its uh, conclusion. Absolutely. At Tagoras, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagoras.com services. You focus on seven principles of decision-making, triage first, follow your North Star, collaborate with others, recognize cognitive bias, establish a champion, manage fallout, practice self-reflection. Each of those principles, there's a lot in them and, and very rich. I was hoping we could spend a little bit of time on that last principle because self-reflection is also so important in learning. So talk a little bit about what role self-reflection plays in decision-making. Sure. So historically, you and I probably have had mentors where they would sit over our shoulder and give us guidance and tell us how to do something better. Well, we're in a really a self-learning world nowadays, and we don't have that as much of an opportunity. So we need to take a demonstrative step and whether you can formulate it however works best for your work style. But if you have a critical decision, writing down, you know, what are the aspects of that particular decision, how you came to a conclusion, and then revisiting that after you see the results to see if there was you know, any way you could have altered your approach to get a more optimal outcome. The second aspect of that is that we all have either crutch words that we use or will you know we have crutch excuses about why we could or could not do something and again by by writing that down and start taking notes about when those instances occur we're more apt to close those gaps and become a more effective leader and you know going through each of the, the principles we can start looking at saying oh i probably should have collaborated with this individual or I had no idea because I joined a company maybe six months ago that 24, 36 months ago, something happened. So there's an inherent bias about going a particular direction. And I should have asked more questions. And, and, and that's really drives the self-reflection piece is to identify where you know there's an obstacle or, or a hiccup and see if we can iron that out. So the next time we're faced with the same decision or something similar, you know, we ask the right question. We learn from ourselves because they say about 85% of us are not very self-aware, meaning only 15% of us are truly self-aware. And so we need to question ourselves at times, even if we are confident, even if we think we, we have all the background information, it's still good to ask open-ended questions of ourselves as well as others to make sure that we're not falling into the same traps we might have before. I was struck by the concept of a decision journal, which you mention in the book, and I think is essentially what you just explained, at least in part, that idea of taking note when you make a decision, thinking about what information did you have, who did you involve. But I like that idea of, of making sure to document those aspects of decision making 
while it's still fresh in your mind, you know, while you're, <laughs> you have that decision that you've just made. And then there's that piece of returning to it later when you have some of the results and you're really seeing how that decision played out. But I think that could be incredibly powerful as a, a tool for better decision-making in the future and an incredible tool for learning as well. I can't begin to say I'm a lifelong learner most of the time by hard knocks. And so I, I would love to say that I do this every time, but I do know that when I am faced with a life altering change or something that I know is significant, I will take notes both in my to-do list, but also what I've learned or found along the way. That way when we can come back, because again, I'm, I don't have the world's best memory. It helps me you know, rethink you know, what I was feeling, what I was thinking during that particular time and right, how do we alter the course going forward? Again, so we don't repeat the same mistakes. And I think one aspect of decision-making that we've touched on somewhat, because we've certainly talked about who else could be involved. I mean, some choices really are mine to make, I would say. You know, like it, this is a very simple one, but it might be, you know, just what I want to have for lunch, right? But there are going to be others that really need to involve others, like, what strategic direction my organization is going to take. And it seems like leaders who solicit input on an important decision are probably going to inevitably end up with some input that doesn't match the decision that's ultimately made. So how do you think about helping those groups, those parties who aren't satisfied by the ultimate decision how do you think about asking for input and sort of knowing that there might be some dissatisfied people or how to sort of control for that in the decision-making process? Sure. There's two principles that I'll hit on. One's collaboration. And I suggest not only soliciting feedback from those that agree with you or those that you have to work with, but those that who might just vehemently oppose a recommendation that you're making and sitting down with them. Often I find those conversations themselves dispel a lot of the, I don't want to say animosity, but the argument of energy around that. Because again, folks want to feel heard. And the second part of that is it's empathy. And it's a theme that I have that goes throughout the entire book is that we really need to understand the impact of our decisions. And so whether you're negatively impacted because you might be asked as part of your work, to move or change a role or learn a new position, but also it comes to you know executive leaders who have contributed an idea that you need to go back to them and have a conversation and talking about why you took a particular path. And it, they may not 100% agree with it, but by taking the time out of both your and their day to really express what challenge you were faced with, what information you're provided, your appreciation for their feedback and why you made a particular decision and that you want them as part of your team because you want to have that objective opinion or perspective to ensure we get to a successful outcome. And you take a humble approach and saying, I may not know everything, but based on what the facts were, this was you know, the most optimal direction for us to take. But I also want my right-hand person to always be identifying what other roadblocks are out there so they can help me or help the organization navigate what's often a very complex course. Those kinds of conversations, admittedly, 
are assuredly, I think, are important, but admittedly, they will take time. And so I, I guess I'm thinking as we're talking about the first principle around triage first, that it probably depends on the level of decision, how much time you're going to be able to invest or how much time it's going to make sense to invest in these sorts of upfront collaborative conversations. And then these sort of follow on conversations around, let me circle back with you, explain why I made this decision, even though it's not what you recommended. Yeah. I I mean, there's a wide spectrum for the speed and that's one of the foundations, again, for the platform is to be able to make decisions with speed. But the platform supports short-term decision-making, even an air traffic controller, all the way to you know, your audience who might be building you know, a software platform. And they're looking to see you know, what technologies to use and how to market it and what their audience is. The latter are a little bit more longer in the, the evaluation phase so you have time to have some of those discussions because usually it's a richer discussion. But if we go back even to the air traffic control, the FAA actually implemented a governance program for air traffic controllers so they could communicate because they're not looking at just technology or what they can see out of the sky, but now they can listen to others as well as they go through the decision-making process. And so, yes, some of these are split-second decisions, which you may have to you know, revisit after an event has occurred and you know, say judgmentally, this is why I chose A and not B, but there's a time to come back because trust and a rich culture are so important for the longevity and success of an organization. So the decision itself might be done very quick, but it does, I highly recommend coming back and having some level of rapport conversation with those individuals or functions or departments and sharing, you know, what you, again, you were faced with, what the criticality of that was, what the value of that was and why we took a particular approach, but never, you know, push down or press away their opinions. I would say, continue to foster that. I want somebody that's always, you know, taking that objective look for the best interest of the organization And so we can, again, consistently get the results that we want. And if you always have yes people around you, we all know where that goes. It's usually not a good situation. I really like this idea of thinking about decision-making and having an effective decision-making process as being part of organizational culture. I think that's really interesting sort of perspective on it. So let's think about our listeners and if they're leading uh, their organization or leading part of their organization and they're hearing this and they're thinking, okay, yes, decision-making is a really important aspect of um, our culture or should be. What would you recommend as sort of some initial steps or a first step, you know, if they're really trying to get more intentional and more deliberate about decision-making in their organization? So from a leader's perspective, and I have a lot of thoughts on this one, but for the sake of this one, we'll get targeted. From a leader's perspective, it's demonstrating by example. It's coming to meetings and fostering questions and setting the expectation that, you know, individuals, again, or groups, will come with a perspective and it may align, it may not align, but setting the expectation that you're coming to a meeting or a decision well-informed is the first step 
The second is, is to not silence, you know, whether, you know, somebody who's just hired yesterday or new to the organization, because a lot of times those, the individuals, because they have a fresh perspective, bring in brilliant ideas that could be hugely beneficial to the organization. So whether you catalog those ideas and you revisit them as part of some sort of inventory list, it's, it's getting people to you know, have that agile analytical brain working constantly saying, how can I do my job better? How can our company operate better? And that it's, it's by instilling your initial, you know, initial cultural values and expectations by the leadership. And then you know, as we take this further, it's, it's, it's talking about you know, building cultures of collaboration. Because again, if we start setting the expectation that it's okay to have sometimes almost the level of an argumentative discourse about a decision, that can be okay. As long as you are arguing the facts and you're not advocating just your position based on ego. And that is, that is a delicate balance that you have to walk because I, I've seen it far too often that two executives go toe to toe and one just wants to win. And that's where it gets, you know, it, it really undermines, you know, your ability to, to achieve a mission, a goal, an objective, because it might be self-interested because it might mean I get a higher bonus this year because my department did X better, but it was at the sacrifice of numerous others. So, Jack, we always like to ask guests that come on the Leading Learning Podcast about their own approach to lifelong learning. But given our focus on decision-making today, I wanted to sort of tweak that question a little bit for you and ask you, how do you go about making decisions about your own lifelong learning? This has been a lifelong journey. I didn't fall upon writing a book about decisions because there was a gap in the marketplace. It was a skill set that I lacked, and I had numerous mentors that blessed me with their time and helped me along my way. And so my decision process is I've always focused on what my North Star is, and this aligns with my personal, my career, my everything. And that's my, it's, for me, it's family first. And so if it doesn't make sense for my family, then it doesn't make sense for me. And then when we get into, you know, the actual business aspect of it, I look at, you know, from a ethical perspective to be able to look at the the person in the mirror, it's, did I really give the right amount of attention to this and bring in, you know, the others that, you know, should have collaborated on a particular decision? I'm a huge person of empathy and I, I have spent my entire life mentoring and building basically kids out of undergraduate. And so I love working with particularly young people, but also senior executives and really opening their eyes because once you learn to make effective decisions consistently, you gain a confidence, your shoulders pull back, your ability to look forward and not look back and wonder if you made the right decisions, just frees your brain. So you're a better leader you make better decisions. People want to follow you because they believe in who you are and, and what you stand for. And so for me, it's a lot of you know who you are as a human being that really for me is, is a driver. So I'm a very ethical bound, a lot of empathy. But again, it's 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 also tied to success. 
I want personal fulfillment myself. And I'm sure your audience does as well, not just for themselves, but for their clients. And so for me, I, I always come back to my North Star, or my goal. What am I looking to achieve? And that can vary across time, but it's so important to be very crystal clear on where you want to go because that will help you make the right decisions so you can get there. And so I, I do think that you, in the book, I think make the point of writing it being really part of your own learning journey and that you've had these lessons from the school of hard knocks around decision-making and what works and what doesn't. And that then the book is essentially part of giving back and, and sharing what you've found to be helpful in making decisions. I want to enrich the world and leave it better than, than I came into it. And unfortunately, early on in my career, some executives and other individuals, they were negatively impacted, whether their job, or their position, because of the risk management reports that I wrote. And so I flipped my entire approach for how I did client service, how I work with my clients. And I try to put myself in their shoes and saying, what pieces are missing? Why are they not getting towards their goal? And as a result, how I wrote, how I engaged was always focused on their goals and why their current status was inadequate for them to achieve that goal. And I, as a personal belief, who I am, what I do for my, in my spoke, my personal and professional life all follows that. How do I help you? Because I do believe, you know, the more good you put out there, the more good you get back. And so it's just, a, it's a personal philosophy about how we make decisions. And yes, all of this has been learned through the school of hard knocks because like I said at the beginning, we're not really taught how to make decisions. And as I vividly remember my mom, when I was young, she said, trust your gut feeling. And it felt like a great idea. But when you think about it, if you're not actually born with a good compass, that might not actually be the right decision. I just recalled actually maybe last week I was uh, on the tennis courts with someone and she said her mother used to always say, make good decisions. <laughs> and she realized that her mother would say that over and over and she would never tell her how to make good decisions. <laughs> so maybe these seven principles would, would help her. Jack Flaherty is a consultant, a speaker, and the author of The Decision Switch, Seven Principles of Successful Decision-Making. In the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 384, you'll find a link to his Decision Switch website. Jeff and I would be grateful if you would rate the Leading Learning Podcast on whatever platform you use to listen, especially if you find the show valuable, because ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And please spread the word about leading learning, whether in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a colleague, a personal email, or on social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 384, you'll find links to connect with us on X, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Yeah.